Hello there. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Little Brains Big Topics. Just wanted to tell you guys to please consider sharing our episodes with your friends on social media if you enjoy them. And make sure to leave us a review on iTunes if you can. It would be really appreciated. Also, if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at big underline topics, all in lowercase. Without further ado, hope you enjoy the episode. And Andrew Knoll is the Fisher Professor of Natural History at Harvard University. He received his bachelor's in geology from Lehigh University in 1973 and his PhD also in geology from Harvard in 1977. Following five years on the faculty of Oberlin College, Knoll returned to Harvard as, uh, as aso- Associate Professor of Biology in 1982. He has been a member of the Harvard faculty ever since, serving both as professor of biology and professor of earth and planetary sciences. Professor Knoll's research focuses on the early evolution of life, earth's environmental history, and especially the interconnections between the two. For the past decade, he has served on the science team for NASA's MER mission to Mars, which you can see from the background. and I, I learned this yesterday. He's also considered one of the 50 most influential scientists in the, in the world today, according to thebestschools.org. So thank you very much for accepting the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so we'll, we'll, yeah, we start off simple. What is life? What is a living thing? <laughs> well, you know, there's a famous story about a Supreme Court justice of the United States who was asked to define pornography. And he said, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> and, and in a sense, that's the way we commonly think about life. Um, if, if you think about what makes you or a bacterium different from a quartz crystal, there are a couple of things. One is that you grow, which a quartz crystal can do as well, but you not only take in materials from the environment, you take in energy and use those materials and energy for the operations of of the cell. So growth, metabolism, and I think importantly, evolution are what characterize living things. You know, a quartz crystal that formed four billion years ago is still a quartz crystal, but bacteria that first came into existence four billion years ago have given rise to all of the diversity we see around us today. I see. So it's like, so it's those three factors that determine, determine in your opinion, distinguish living between and non-living. They certainly distinguish between them. Uh, There's a, a, a guy named Jerry Joyce in the United States who wants to find life as a chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. And although I originally didn't like that definition, the more I thought about it, 
the more I thought it might be the most general way that you can actually distinguish between living systems wherever we find them and non-living systems. I see. Um, so when do we start observing the first signs of life on Earth? Okay, well, let's start with things that most people know about. Yeah. Uh, most people know that the Earth is an interesting planet in that it preserves its own history in, in sedimentary rocks that are laid down layer on layer through time. Uh, most people know that uh, some time ago, the Earth was ruled by dinosaurs, a group that doesn't exist anymore. Um, the last dinosaur went extinct about 66 million years ago. The first dinosaurs existed about 240 million years ago but the earth itself is four and a half billion years old. So we have to ask what came before dinosaurs. Uh, the fossil record shows that long before dinosaurs, there were animals living in the oceans, but even the oldest animals go back about 600 million years. And so when we trace life more deeply into the past, it's a record of microbial life. And frankly, if we look at the oldest little metamorphosed sedimentary rocks that we know of on Earth, which are rocks about three and a half billion years old from Australia and also South Africa, they already contain the fingerprint of, of life. So in a sense, we run out of rocks to look at before we run out of uh, a signature of life in those rocks. Okay. So, so what, what is the furthest back that we've managed to look into? Well, the, the oldest, you know, unmetamorphosed or little metamorphosed sedimentary rocks are about three and a half billion years old. They have chemical evidence that there was a biological carbon cycle, that there was a biological sulfur cycle, and they also have some interesting sedimentary features called stromatolites, which form by the interaction of microbes and, and physical processes. There are some older rocks. There are some 3.8 to 3.9 billion year old rocks in, in Greenland and Northern Canada. Uh, these have been highly metamorphosed, that is they have been heated and placed under tremendous pressure, but they still contain chemical evidence for a biological carbon cycle. And so that's probably not as striking as the as the slightly younger materials that have multiple lines of evidence but as i say we one of the problems of the earth as a recorder is that geological processes not only lay down sediments they also erode them and destroy them and by the time you get back to the early earth we have very little rock record left to look at mm. so the furthest back we've managed to look is 3.8 billion years ago. Yeah, there are, uh, again, it depends on the confidence you put in the record. There is one technologically amazing uh, report from a few years ago where people looked at single crystals of a, of a mineral called zircon. And zircon is this very, very tough mineral that survives through all sorts of geological uh, uh, events. And there are zircons 
that are older than the oldest rocks. And I should back up and say that if you go down to, say, the, co the coastline of, of England in Lyme Regis, you will find sands there that are accumulating today, but those sands contain minerals that are several hundred million years old because they've been eroded from other land masses. And I would guess that if you work hard enough at Lyme Regis, you'll find some relatively old zircons in these modern sediments. We then go back to some rocks in Australia where the rocks themselves are a little more than 3 billion years old, but they actually contain some of these erosional remnants from older, now vanished uh, pieces of, of crust that go back well over 4 billion years. And one of those crystals, one tiny little crystal, contains an inclusion of graphite, it's pure carbon, and that graphite has a geochemical signature which is at least consistent with a biological carbon cycle even then. Now that's not the only way you can interpret that signature, but it's at least possible that Earth has been a biological planet since its infancy. Wow. So Earth is four and a half billion years old, and you're, you're saying rocks of, well, not rocks, crystals of around four four 4.1 billion years old are showing signs of life. They're certainly showing a chemical signature that is consistent with life, if not diagnostic for life. Wow. Okay. So I guess... Um, Given how early life was formed on Earth, can we, uh, can we really uh, uh, attribute it to a very lucky accident? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, and the way people answer that question has actually changed in my scientific lifetime. I, I think when I was your age, a lot of people thought that, yes, Every, all the chemical reactions that lead to living systems are inherently improbable, and it's only because we had billions of years in which to, for these to happen that we have life on Earth. But that flies in the face of what I just told you about, you know, the fact that, that life began early on the planet Earth. And I remember one, one of the pioneers in... Uh, research to try and understand the origins of life, uh, a man named Stanley Miller was once asked, how long does it take life to begin? And Stanley thought for a minute, and he says, well, I think a decade is too short. And he says, and, and maybe a century is too short, but if you can't do it in a million years, you probably can't do it. And, and that really encompasses the view that there's a very deterministic chemistry if you have the right conditions, the right chemistry will happen and you will in a relatively short amount of time have molecules that can actually replicate themselves and evolve. And there you, you sort of met the criteria for thinking that something is alive. So uh, I think that means life could be an... Um inevitable uh, law of our universe? 
Well, it, it could be. I mean, the, the problem is one of observation. Mm. So we know something about our own solar system. Um, it is pretty clear that within our own solar system, Earth is the one planet that not only has had life, but has been transformed by life. Um, it is possible, and there are several uh, missions flying to Mars at this minute uh, to look for it. It's, it's possible that there was once life on Mars. We don't know what the probability of that is, but we can ask the question directly by looking at ancient rocks the way we do on Earth. There are a couple of other outposts in some of the watery moons of Jupiter and Saturn where it's at least possible that life took root. So if we, if we stick to facts, things we know, it's pretty clear that everything we know about life in the universe is here on Earth. It's the only real evidence we have of, of, of life elsewhere. Although, but as you said, you know, if the planet has the right chemistry, maybe life is something that will happen in many places. We can ask directly about that in our own solar system, and it may be that we can find uh, a, a chemical signature of, of biological processes in the atmosphere of some planet evolving a, a distant star. But to be honest, for most of the universe, we'll never have an answer to that question unless somebody calls us up and tells us. Mm. So in, in theory, yes, even if only one planet in a million is amenable to life, there are billions of planets out there. And I doubt that we're alone. On the other hand, actually finding concrete evidence of life elsewhere is a, is a really challenging problem. I see. Um, this leads me to my next question. And that is when we, we're saying life. So is life synonymous with DNA-based life? Ah, that's a good question. And it, and it leads to the more general question of how representative of life in general is the life that we happen to know. And I, I would say that if we find life on the planet Remulon or somewhere else, it, I'm willing to bet that it will be based on carbon. I think carbon has a number of unique properties that, that make it the molecule of life. I also think there will be molecules that carry information, such as that, like DNA does on Earth. There will be molecules capable of function, as proteins do in cells on, on the Earth. There will be molecules that give rise to membranes that segregate structures and phases from one another, like membranes do in our cells. Whether they will be precisely similar to DNA, RNA, and the membranes we see in Earth biology, I don't know. Um, it's not impossible, but I suspect there are a number of different routes that early life could take. Um, do all life on Earth, do they originate from the from one cell or do they or could they have you, you see what i'm trying to get I, i'm trying to get to whether it was 
a number so in a period of time you had a, a certain number of chemicals turning into living things yeah or was it that one thing that divided up into so we're all all cells are the ancestor of one chemical called that turned into life yeah that that turns out to have a two part answer um i think all of the cells that we know of living on this planet today are descended from a common ancestor so in that sense we are all related and have a common history but i can well imagine that had you been you know on the earth 4.2 billion years ago you would see an origin of life in one place a different origin somewhere else so in a sense i think the common ancestor of all of us is not necessarily the first the first type of life but the type of life that survived and prospered over 4 billion years that that's that's fascinating so that means maybe in another planet with different conditions you could have you could, it is feasible to think of life that are still you know carbon based lives that are significantly different from ours could happen i think that's why you know i have friends who want nothing more than to go to enceladus this moon of of saturn and look for evidence of biology there and, and of course then there's this practical issue too let's say there is life that spews out of uh water water that comes to the surface and and celadus and let's say it is life that is somewhat different from life as we know it then the question is how will we recognize it if we find some molecule that's interesting but isn't dna could it still have been made by biological processes and and that's I I think that's one of those questions that you probably can't come to a definitive answer to um theoretically I think at the end of the day the answer to the kind of good question you just ask is only going to come from exploration. Mm. Um so I there are a few theories as well about life is starting on earth. So one of them is it could have come come from Mars. that th- you, we, from the asteroids it could have traveled because apparently we know that they can survive the void of empty space as soon as they get back into water some we apparently have some living organisms you can put it into the space once you put it back into water they start reproducing is that a feasible hypothesis um it it's certainly a hypothesis i can't disprove definitively um you know that kind of hypothesis makes the assumptions that there once was life on mars uh we we don't know that one way or the other and and i think what i find unsatisfactory about all of those kind of panspermia type of hypotheses is that it doesn't solve the problem of the origin of the life it just kicks the can down the street and says well you know we don't have to worry about the origin of life on earth <laughs> but we got to start worrying about the origin of life on Mars and and so I'm content to think about processes that could have and probably did take place on the early earth that can help us to understand the origin of life 
I see. Um, yeah, it's just like what was there before Big Bang, that kind of question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When did it... <laughs> um, so... Yeah, so another question I had. So all life on Earth seem to get their energy from uh, from the sun from sun's energy right all that, that's not quite true but go is ahead that not oh the, yeah. that will that will change my question well <laughs> okay. basically i was wondering because so could there be other forms of life deep down on air that are different from ours that use the geothermal energy that we haven't discovered yet? Yes, well, we, we actually do know of places in a variety of environments where there is no sunlight, where microorganisms are able to use chemical energy to make uh, carbon molecules and ATP and reducing power just the way plants use use sunlight there just as plants and algae are called photoautotrophs which means they make their own food from the sunlight there are many microorganisms diverse microorganisms called chemoautotrophs and they make their food by using chemical you know chemical reactions and harnessing the energy from those rather than the, than the sun you know We think that everything has to be photosynthetic because we happen to live at the surface. But if you went down, you know, five kilometers and looked at the deep seafloor, you would find chemoautotrophy among bacteria and, and archaea. So yes, uh, and many people think that chemoautotrophs are more likely for early primary producers than photosynthetic organisms. All right. So it, it it is possible that the early organisms uh, did not use sun as a source of energy initially. Yeah, I, I always like to think of photosynthesis as the great ecological liberator of life. Um, because if if you are dependent on chemical energy and therefore on chemical gradients where the right two molecules will come in contact with one another, There are a limited number of places where that can happen. It can happen at hydrothermal vents in the ocean, for example. And so one could have had early ecosystems that were thriving, but were only thriving in fairly local environments. Once organisms, and, and they're all bacteria, uh, evolve the ability to harness sunlight, then anywhere you have water, carbon dioxide, and nutrients, you can live. So that allowed life to spread out across the planet. Mm, so the bacteria that initially used sunlight got such a huge evolutionary advantage that it became the norm. A absolutely. And, and the other fill-up here is that when we think of photosynthesis, we almost always think of photosynthesis as plants do it. That is... They take CO2 and then they use water as a source of electrons to make the organic molecules and give off oxygen gas as a, as a byproduct. But there's at least six other types of photosynthesis known among bacteria 
They don't use water. They don't generate oxygen. So life could have, and in fact, life did exist for about a billion years on this planet before there was any oxygen in the atmosphere. So all of these interesting bacterial metabolisms that seem like a sideshow to us because we live in these, you know, sun-soaked, oxygen-drenched surface environments, those are in some ways the organisms we should be thinking about when we think of, about ecosystems early in Earth history. We sh yeah, we, sh we shouldn't fall for the bias of being consumers of the sun. Yeah. I see. Um, so, there ha so we've had a around 4 billion years of evolution on Earth. Um, or three, well, depending on different estimates, but around yeah. that. So, when we want to look at the the four billion, how do we look at it? How do we look at the progression? Are there different errors? How did, how did things change over the four billion years? Well, in, in a sense, what we, we are confident of, both from everything we know about the beginnings of life and the evolutionary relationship among organisms today, that life starts out as communities of microorganisms, bacteria and their sister called archaea, that do not generate oxygen, do not use oxygen for respiration. We add to those bacteria and archaea that do generate oxygen and do use oxygen in respiration. Then uh, about, say, two billion years ago, halfway through the history of life, a new type of cell emerges called a eukaryotic cell which is a cell that has a nucleus that's bound by a membrane. So you're a eukaryotic organism and so am I. So are amoebas and plants. Um, and then only about 600 million years ago do we start seeing the first evidence of animals. Only about maybe 440 million years ago do we see animals and plants getting out on land and establishing terrestrial ecosystems. And if you get excited by, you know, intelligent technological life, that's just a blip. So life has this long history and, and there is an environmental history that parallels it. So until 2.4 billion years ago, it looks like Earth was very oxygen poor. Then oxygen goes up. All of these organisms that generate and use oxygen become ecologically important. Eukaryotes, which fundamentally use oxygen, evolve. And then only about maybe 600 million years ago does oxygen start to go up again and start to attain, you know, make the atmosphere look a little bit like it does today. Then we start seeing animals. So what I, what I find really interesting about the history of our planet is that environmental history and biological history are very closely intertwined, even to the point where that one technologically competent species is now changing the physical environment at a, a, a fairly drastic rate. Yeah, yeah, life has existed, even if we say life on Earth, like has been the first type of life. Uh, 
So I know the universe is 13.8 billion years old. So what is that? That's like one third, one third of universe's time. There has been life on it, which is fairly impressive. Yeah, and, and we don't know that, you know, I, yeah. I can't sit here and tell you that there was no life on some planet that existed eight billion years ago. We, we simply have no information on that. So yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, in some ways that's a very majestic way to think about life on Earth, that it uh, yeah. <laughs> covers the last third of the history of the universe. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, well, that's what we do. We got the the bias of ego. Always, we want to try yeah. to <laughs> make ourselves special, even if it's Earth. Even if, <laughs> um. So what? So, my guess is, what gave rise to more complex organisms? Well, that's a really good question, and it has several different answers, all of which are good answers and all of which are, are incomplete in and of themselves. I mean, if we, if we look at what's required for complex multicellularity, you know, as it exists in animals, plants, some fungi, some algae, first of all, you need a way for cells to stick together when they divide. So you need some sort of adhesive principle you also need uh, means by which cells can communicate with one another. So you need molecular signaling devices for that. And related to the second feature, you need a developmental program. That is, you need a series of genes which where one gene will be expressed, its product then either causes another gene to be expressed or inhibits it from being expressed. And you, you basically have this real program that takes, you know, you and me from being a single fertilized egg to a complex organism with several trillion cells and different types of, of, of tissues. So all organisms, all the, the six or so times that complex multicellularity has evolved on Earth, those three things were all in place and they were all acquired even in the same order. So that's necessary. So that's, that's the kind of genetic view. Um, I would also say that to make uh, a complex organism like you or me, you need a certain amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, had you been, you know, traveled through time and got placed back on a beach three and a half billion years ago, you would have been dead in three minutes because there was no oxygen. Um, in fact, had you been placed on a beach 800 million years ago, you wouldn't have lasted very long because there wasn't that much oxygen. Um, so in, in a sense, there is this interaction between genetic and developmental evolution, which we can learn a lot about from comparative biology, and the origin and maintenance of environments that are capable of sustaining complex multicellular organisms. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an intricate dance between Earth and life, and I, I think that's one of the reasons it's such a fascinating thing to think about. So unlike life, complex organisms could have well been a very lucky accident, hadn't the oxygen levels been adjusted properly? 
Yeah, again, uh, you know, I can show you books that people, very good people have written, some of whom will say, life is everywhere, but complex life is rare. I can give you other books that people will say, well, the origin of life was inherently unlikely, but based on the fact that the one example of life we know of has evolved technological complexity, you know, maybe once you have life, it's inevitable. And the problem, of course, is that both of these views are being promulgated on the basis of the evidence of one planet, and that's ours. So the good news is you can think whatever you want about uh, the inevitability of intelligence, and until and unless we find evidence of it somewhere else in the universe, it's all speculation. Mm. With the sample size of one, you can't really make... Well, that, that's the issue, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have a sample size of one and, a, and an infinite universe. <laughs> so <laughs> I can yeah. see <laughs> where it could go wrong. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, so why do living organisms inevitably die? Well, that's a good question, and I, I'm not sure I'm the best person in the world to, to answer that, um, you know, many organisms don't have a life cycle quite the same of ours. So if you look at a single-celled alga, it will divide into two. Those will grow. Those will divide again. Um, it can't do that inevitably because of things we learned from Malthus several hundred years ago, that is, if you keep on making organisms that use nutrients or food, and there comes a point at which you outstrip the supply, and then something has to, has to give. And so I, I suspect it's the fact that, that uh, nutrition, however you're getting it, whether you're a, a photosynthetic organism that's getting nitrogen and phosphorus from the soil, or whether you're a fish that's getting your nutrition by eating another uh, organism, there, there are limits and you, if you don't have a life cycle, you inevitably have episodic catastrophes. And again, I don't know that that's the right answer, but um, it's the best thing I could think of at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is an and limiting factor that is the resources that you can consume. Yeah. But then, do and, we... and also, you know, and, and people my age don't like to hear this, but, you know, if you think about it, most species have a finite time during which they are, their individuals are reproductively active. So if, to use humans as an example, if, and I know this is a number, that makes no sense, but you stop being reproductively active at age 40, then what good does living to 80 do the species? Um, now, it turns out for humans, there's a good answer to that because we have complex behavior and, and family units can, can really benefit from that. But I can imagine that for many species that the longevity of the individual does bear some relationship to the time frame in which the individuals can be reproductively active. That's very interesting. 
um, it means that basically you are not your purpose is not to well not but we're not we're not trying to get to humans but as living things your purpose is not to maintain yourself it's just to pass the gene make the gene survive you're not the subject <laughs> you know richard dawkins wrote about this years ago the selfish gene that yeah it, you know in, in essence populations survive because a there is reproduction and b there is mutation so that uh the genetic makeup of the next generation will not be the same as the genetic makeup of your generation and if the environment changes there will be some individuals in that next generation who will do better than than others so in in a sense you know Dar darwin knew pretty precisely what was going on that you have uh, reproduction you have inheritable variation and you have selection on that variation and to a first approximation that is what gives rise to evolution. Hmm. Um, so we know you're you're involved with the missions to Mars. Could you t could you tell us a bit more about those? When what they're trying to achieve? What we've found so far? Yeah. Now I, I should say that I was not a kid who read science fiction or thought much about going to other planets or either by myself or, or virtually. But I was at a, a meeting, uh, it was in 1996, there was a very provocative paper published which looked at meteorites, which everyone agreed had been sourced on Mars and made the argument that those meteorites contained evidence for Martian life. Now, that is not a point of view that has carried the day for most people, but it, the public was hugely interested in this question to the point where the US government actually convened a meeting to which fortunately I was invited to think about how we might explore for evidence of, of life elsewhere. And at that meeting, I met a, a young guy named Steve Squires from Cornell University who was putting together a proposal for a Mars mission. And Steve said, would you like to be part of the team? And I said, yeah, sure, <laughs> why not? Little knowing that that would change my life for more than a decade. And so I was fortunate to be on the Mars team that gave, really ran two rovers, one called Opportunity, one called Spirit. And neither of those was designed to find direct evidence of life. They were designed to do something equally important and that is to try and understand the uh, environmental history of Mars. So one of the things we learned, for example, if you look at those rocks behind me, which are an outcrop of three and a half to four billion year old rocks, the sedimentary rocks that formed on, on Mars, on the basis of the physical and chemical examination of those rocks and, and other ones in the region, I can say that at that time in that place, Mars was arid, acidic, and slightly oxidizing. So we can learn something about the environments that would have been available for life. And when you string that together, you get an environmental history that tells us something about 
the probable window during which life might have thrived on Mars. And I think in everything up to the current missions of the US, the Chinese, and in two years, the European Union with British participation, everything up to now has been trying to understand that environmental history. And, and we still know it imperfectly, but we know a whole lot more than we did 20 years ago. Um, now, all of the rovers that are en route to Mars or will be en route to Mars within the next two years have instruments that in principle could identify fingerprints of biology. No idea whether they're going to find anything, but now we've gone from this indirect looking for environments to saying, okay, if, if there was life, it should have left a chemical molecular record and let's see if we can find it. Has there been liquid water on Mars? Yes. Uh, right. it, we, Easy, there's this life on Mars then. <laughs> well, this is interesting. <laughs> there's, um, back in the 1960s and 70s, some of the first satellites to fly past Mars identified channels that looked like river systems. And we now know that there are dozens of channels cut by water. We know that uh, we have direct evidence for transport of particles by water. We have evidence for lakes. We have evidence for water-rock interactions seen in the chemistry of the rocks on Mars. So there's no question that at some time in the past, Mars was somewhat wetter than it is now. Um, Mars has been as awful in terms of biology as it is today for a long time, billions of years. So if we're looking for a window when life might have prospered at the surface, it is probably a window within the first billion years of, of Martian history. And, and one more thing, and, and this is something that's quite contentious, so I don't want to push it too far one way or the other, but we tend to, when we hear this evidence of life, say three to, or evidence of water three to four billion years ago, we tend to think, oh, so there was continuous water for a billion years. That sounds pretty good for life. But it's quite reasonable to look at the geologic record of Mars and think that that water was episodic. So you might have had water on Mars for 10,000 years and then not seen it again for a million years. Uh, again, I, I would stress that, that that's, a, that's a good arguing point for Mars scientists. But if you can entertain that second scenario, that has very different implications for life than the idea that water was constantly there for hundreds of millions of years. So I guess uh, you don't think there is currently water on Mars? Um, I think that, you know, there are one or two days a year where at the right place you might get temperatures that will make ice, because there is permafrost uh, underlying much of the Martian surface, and there, there are, of course, glaciers 
at the at the pole. So you can get maybe a little low latitude melting, um, but there's not a lot of water or persistent water at the surface. There may well be subterranean liquid water at uh, higher temperatures and pressures within the planet. And it may be that every time you whack into Mars with a big meteorite, that you would melt ice in the, in the, in the surface sediments and create transiently liquid water. So I wouldn't go so far as to say there is no possibility of liquid water on Mars now, but it's it's not an important phenomenon. Oh, I'm disappointed. I thought we were going to find Martian life in my lifetime. <laughs> well, as I said, it's 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 if you're going to look for living Martians, you're going to need a drill, and you're going to have to drill into the interior now. There are plans to do that, um, and that may happen in your lifetime. Uh, even though I hope that I have many years ahead of me, I doubt that it will happen in in any you know kilometer depth way in in my lifetime. But yeah, so I, I think if you if you're sold on the idea that Mars is today a living planet, you have to look in the fairly deep interior. Otherwise, if you're looking for evidence of surface life, you have to look in the past. Uh, what, well, we've talked about Mars. What do we know about uh, uh, Jupiter's moons? One of the Europa people talk about, and apparently we're going to have to name them Europeans if there's a life. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be Europans. <laughs> Europans, okay, fair <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, there are um, people, and there there are missions on the books to look at uh, several exciting moons of of Jupiter and Saturn. Europa is important because, for a number of geophysical reasons, people now agree that beneath a veneer of surface ice, water ice, on Europa there are kilometers, perhaps many kilometers of, of liquid water, kind of a salty brine underneath there. Um, in fact, there's a new book out uh, by someone I've known for years named Kevin Hand, who it's called Alien Oceans. And it's all about how wonderful it would be to explore the subsurface of Europa because it is one of the few places in the solar system other than Earth, where there is at least the plausibility of, of, of life. By the same token, there's a, a moon of, of Saturn called Enceladus, which has geysers. So it has, you know, water spewing out from places around this, the South Pole. And that, again, appears to be connecting the surface to deep-seated liquid water. And I should say that, you know, you might say, how do you get liquid water so far from the sun? Uh, and yes, all of these moons are far too far away from the sun to be heated enough to have liquid water by solar radiation. They get their heat by tidal friction from their uh, revolution or, or the revolving around uh, these giant planets. So that's, that's how you can get liquid water 
in the interior of moons far away from the sun. And then there's, there's one other candidate that is in some ways my favorite, even though I think it's not a good candidate for life. Uh, another moon of Saturn called Titan is I think the, the most wonderfully wacky place in the entire solar system. It has a thick atmosphere, it has lakes, it has rain, it has rivers. Um, now it turns out that the rain, the river water, the lake water is actually liquid methane, it's not water. Uh, there are valleys, there are cobbles of, of water ice. There's an extremely cold planet. On the other hand, it has this very interesting chemistry, um, organic chemistry even, and uh, you know a, a very active, dynamic, thick atmosphere, which is a very unusual in our solar system. So there's a lot of a lot of good targets. How we know? How do we know they have uh, liquid water? All the the moons you named. Well, it it comes from geophysical measurements. So you can, uh, we we first learned that there was water ice on the surface of Europa by looking at the way light was light was absorbed and reflected, and and uh, beamed out from from that ice and. Uh, We've known how to do that for terrestrial materials for a, a long time. And so, you know, decades ago, people noticed that the uh, spectrum of light emanating from their open surface said that that surface was largely uh, water ice. So that tells you there's, there's H2O there. It doesn't say anything about uh, liquid. Then uh, some geophysical measurements of gravity and magnetism uh, suggested that not only was Europa layered, but that the upper layer that was much thicker than the, uh, the surface ice layer was made of water. So it's really geophysical measurements made by a series of both terrestrial observations and satellites that collectively give rise to this, I, I think at this point, very well grounded view that there is liquid water beneath the surface. Uh, and I've, I've heard we can, we can pe some people are starting to look even outside the solar system. They can get, what, what was it? It was on the news a few years ago that they found the second Earth in the Goldilocks zone of a different solar system with, where they use the sun reflection to see the atmosphere. Apparently yes. there was a thin line on its equator that could accommodate. I don't know. Have you, did you hear about that? Well, this is a remarkable story. Um, again, I remember when I was a, a, a student, we had the first um, report and argument that we could see planets around other stars. Uh, you know, until that time, everything we knew about how solar systems work was simply what we learned about our own solar system. And while those first reports of extrasolar planets were, of course, controversial through time and with better and better means of observation, you know, there are now thousands of extrasolar planets that have been cataloged. They're around, you know, thousands of stars. 
Uh, it now looks like most stars have planets orbiting around them. And this goes back to the billions and billions argument that there must be lots of planets out there. Um, Excuse me. Initially, we could only see very large kind of Jupiter-sized planets that revolved very quickly, you know, in matters of days or weeks around their sun, because that's all we could see. Now, as, as you mentioned in your question, we are seeing more and more planets that are, you know, somewhere between the size of the Earth and the size of Uranus, for example, kind of they often called super Earths. Um, and as you said, we found at least a couple that look to be similar in size and density to the Earth and maybe the right distance from their, their star. So, you know, we are now very much in an age where we don't have to rely on our own solar system to think generally about uh, stars and their and their planets. We have this, you know, almost have this inventory that grows almost day by day. The real question, I think, for and, and as you said, we we're ac actually learning to um, identify constituents of atmospheres, which is exciting. So then. The question comes, is there anything that we are going to see when we look at the atmospheres of these extrasolar planets that will tell us definitively that those planets are biological or not? And that's a hard question. And um, you'll get differing answers from, from different people. But I, what I can tell you is the day that someone reports definitive evidence from a planetary atmosphere that that planet is uh, inhabited, hundreds of planetary scientists will start writing their rebuttals on all the various ways you could make that signature by physical processes alone. So it's, it's a, a tremendously exciting um, time in the history of exploration that we're learning things at least about our own galactic environment you know we can look out to a couple of light years so we really can't see planets in most of the universe but we can certainly see them for a couple of light years away from from us and there's lots of them and we'll see whether there is um, anything that definitively tells us that we're not alone even in our own corner of the galaxy and that would be the biggest news of all time i i guess that would be a pretty good one yeah <laughs> like on if, if you think about it the, the topics on the news is all about human by human conflict but if you think oh wow there is another i i think it would revolutionize the way we think about everything well it's interesting level. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're, you're right on some level. I, I do find it interesting that when we think about Mars, you know, if you look at the early literature on Mars, we, we really first started being able to make at least simple maps of Mars based on telescopes in, you know, the later 1800s. And those gave rise to a, a series of scientific papers that suggested that there was life on Mars, that there were canals 
on the Martian surface cut by parched civilizations trying to transport seasonal meltwater from glaciers at the poles. And, and if you look at, it's fascinating, if you look at the early um, fiction literature on Mars, it was all about these benevolent, you know, civilizations that would come and help Earth to get rid of its problems. And then there was a series of books in the late 1800s, particularly in Britain, where there were these invaders who came from some unnamed country, although they spoke with German accents, it has to be said. <laughs> and then uh, a writer named H.G. Wells decided that's a good theme for a novel, and he transferred it to Mars, and that was the War of the Worlds. And so without any information on whether there was anyone on, on Mars, all our thinking about Mars was really the transplantation of our own fears and aspirations to, to another planet. And, and I suspect that uh, that will continue if and when we find evidence for some biogeochemical evidence for, for life on a distant planet. Yeah, my guess is most sci-fi fans will be disappointed that it's a single cell <laughs> organism. Well, you know, there is, uh, again, one of the, the few really great sets of books on uh, Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson. He begins in his preface by saying, we are the only intelligence Mars has ever known. <laughs> and I think that, that is just a wonderful statement. And, and, it, and it does coincide with, you know, once, once we started understanding that Mars was this dry, awful pile of rocks today, um, most science fiction about Mars stopped being about Martians coming to Earth and started being about humans terraforming and colonizing Mars because, you know, there, there's still literature to be had from that planet. Uh, but now it very directly involves human exploration. Yeah, just like the movie The Martian. Yeah. So, yeah, you didn't see a single alien there. It was... Just, <laughs> it was called the Martian, but it was basically a guy going putting potatoes on its. <laughs> yeah, I, th I thought. By the way, that was actually a great movie. Uh, there, I, I'm kind of doubtful that if you left Matt Damon on Mars for a year, he would be successful in living and growing potatoes. But they, <laughs> you know, they at least got the feel of what it might be like on Mars. I, I think they did a good job. Um, oh, but whilst we're at it, tell us some of your favorite uh, space films. Space films? I, again, I, I, I'm not a great science oh. fiction fan. <laughs> I, I do like The Martian. Yeah. Um, I think just because I saw it when I was about 12 years old and it just blew my mind. I've always liked 2001, The Space Odyssey. 2001. Um, but... You know, I'll still take Casablanca any day. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so what are some of the uh, upcoming discoveries in the near, near future that you're most looking forward to? Well, um, you know, things are ongoing. I think one of the things that excites me now on Earth is that many people, and and my lab's involved in this, but we're certainly not 
the only or even the leading ones doing this, we're, we're learning to think, to view evidence for ancient environmental history more quantitatively. So, you know, we can say now that there was essentially no oxygen in the atmosphere before 2.4 billion years ago, and then there was a little, and after 600 million years ago, there was a lot. Um, but it'd be nice to know whether a little means 1% of present day levels or, or 10%. And people all over the world are coming up with new types of evidence, new models to interpret that evidence that are helping us to get a, a more quantitative feel for, for, for what's going on. So that, that's exciting. Um, I, I think we still live, you know, as paleontologists in an age of discovery. Every year, uh, people are finding new evidence of early life, new evidence of the diversity and structure of, of early animals, um, even, you know, great new evidence for the early evolution of, of humans. So uh, I, I, I think that we are, in terms of life and environment on Earth, in a golden age of discovery and our, our ability and, and our, our willingness to think of environment and life as part of a single system, I think is a step forward as well. I mean, Alexander von Humboldt thought that way 200 years ago, but scientists are just now catching up to him. But I, I think the way of the future in terms of understanding the relationship between our planet and its life and by extrapolation, any planet and its life is to think not of the earth as this inert platform on which dynamic life evolves, but rather as the earth system as a dynamic system with both biological and physical components. Final question. Um, so we've, again, it always comes back to our egos. So <laughs> we've, we've learned that a virus that has a mass of a few grams can <laughs> halt the entire world's economies. Uh, what, 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 what do you, how do you feel when you study how short our lives are compared to the four billion years of evolution on Earth? How, what, yeah, what, how, what reflections do you take from that? No, that, that's, a, that's a great question um, because we, you know, even if we live a hundred years, we are seeing what amounts to a snapshot in a very, very long history, history of life. Um, I, I think it is the case that on, on over hundreds of years, science has forced us to stop thinking that the universe exists because of us and for us. Um, you know, evolution makes it clear that we're one of 10 million species and not necessarily favored by any set of processes. Having said that, it's very clear that we are the ecological caretakers of the world now and, and we have it in our hands to do good or, or, or ill and have to take that very seriously. But we're not the reason for Earth. And then, you know, old Copernicus, until then everything revolved around the Earth. 
And then Copernicus says, no, Earth is just one of these planets that revolves around the sun, not, not special at all. And then once we learn about other galaxies, you know, we are in a small galaxy in some unprepossessing corner of the Milky Way. Um, so yeah, that, that makes you feel on the one hand that we, we, we are individually insignificant, which I, I think in many ways is true. On the other hand, our significance derives from the wonderful thought that we are alive at a time when we can actually ask and answer and address intelligent questions about the whole universe over 13.8 billion years. And, you know, it's great to be alive at a time when we can ask these questions. We're at a period where we know more than ever else how much we don't know. <laughs> that is a step forward, believe me. <laughs> that is a huge step forward. So thank you very much for your, for your time, uh, Professor. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it, Mohammed. Thank you. Great.